Hello and welcome to Tomorrow Comes Today, the podcast from St. James's Place. How much do we really know? Are we drowning in data but starving for wisdom? And what can data really tell us anyway? Helping me today to answer these questions, in the studio we have investment expert Rob Gardner and pensions expert Claire Trott. We'll also be hearing from the undercover economist Tim Harford. Baroness Camilla Cavendish, author of Extra Time, 10 Lessons for an Aging World and former advisor to the Cameron government. And Toby Heaps, who's looking to information to help with our sustainability goals. So Rob and, and Claire, now data is being talked of as the new oil. I mean, we've, it's transformed everything about the economy and the way we live. And we've, we've got almost instantaneous access to it. Is this something that you, you, you see as well? Or is there is there... Are we getting lost? Is the human dimension and the kind of that wisdom, is there still a place for that? I, I have to say data is something that is really, really important. But the problem with the amount of data and the immediate data that we're getting at the moment is do we know it's real? There's so much fake data out there. So sifting through what you know and using your experience to to understand whether it's true, uh, it can, can be a real issue because if you don't have the experience to determine whether it's real data or fake data or meaningless data, uh, then, then you don't know what to do with it. And I, I think that can be a real problem. And, and that's something that's, that's speeding up, of course. And it's, I mean, it's always been a challenge knowing what was what was real and what was fake. But I guess the time that we've got to process that is um, is shrinking all the time. Rob, what do you see? Yeah, look, I mean, there's no doubt that we have more data than we've ever had before. I mean, I think, you know, it's probably every, it, was, it wasn't that long ago. It was every year we took, in one year, we took more photos than had ever been taken in the history of the world. So, look, I think we need to separate data for decision making and wisdom, which is putting that data in context. So actually, I think what was happening at the beginning of the year where we had all these mathematicians with charts and exponential rates of growth around COVID-19. And, and you're seeing this debate happen now, which is better, the UK, Sweden, Spain, the US. And depending on the narrative, I can show you charts to tell you the story that I wanted to tell you. So, for example, Sweden has the popula- population density, which is a tenth of the UK. And you know people compare Sweden to the UK. So, Data is important, and I think data can be used to to make forecasts about the future. And I'm excited to hear about what Tim's going to talk about later because he talks about that. But how we contextualize that, how we use wisdom to derive knowledge from that, I think is is what is what's missing more than ever right now. And do we think is it a consequence of the just the swift turnaround? And I suppose politicians, whereas in the past they would they would have a day to you know retire to checkers and to formulate policy, are now expected to have instant reactions to every new uh, revelation as it comes up in the timeline. I think it's just which way round. I think politicians have always had an agenda to 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 make. So the question is, are we following a scientific method where we're going and researching good science and bad science and trying to come up with good conclusions and follow a scientific measure method and peer review and all the rest? Or do I have a personal manifesto philosophy view of the world that I want to project and I want to use the data to make that point? And I you know I I say in the camp that we need more of the former. But I think we 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 now in a world where we get more of the latter, and I think the news cycle and social media just has accelerated that. Of course, this is a hot topic right now uh, with the intergenerational tensions that we're seeing in the population. The idea that data can tell us what will be needed for a, for a particular path, 
and can help us uh, formulate how it's going to be in 20 years, 30 years and so on. And well, Claire, I'm, I'm sure uh, you're going to enjoy um, Baroness Cavendish's point here about the way in which, for example, Sweden and the UK are modelled differently and what those outcomes can be for later life. It's really important to, to see where you're going. And if you, in your head, you think you're going one way and pensions is a really it's a really difficult thing because you're tying money up for a long time uh, and, and people just they can't necessarily, especially for young people, can't necessarily see the benefit of it, of it being being tied tied up for that amount of time and trying to explain some things like compound interests and how today's pound will make so much more difference than next month's pound or next year's pound. Um, you can show them actually relatively easy um, how you can have a better life. Uh, and we all want to aspire to the better life, but we don't like to think about retirement. Uh, and uh, and I think that's that's something we need to sort of reconsider. How long are we going to be in retirement? How long are we going to live? And, um, and I think that's a, a very strong thing to bring back to reality for people because they, they just don't see it. And this leads us in very nicely to uh, my conversation with Baroness Camilla Cavendish. Uh, I paid a, a visit to her in Maida Vale and uh, had a chat with her about exactly that and about how we are all living longer and what that means for us now. I suppose the best statistic is that in 2020, there'll be more people on the planet over 65 than under five. And that has never happened before. And that means that some countries are actually shrinking, like Japan, which is the world's oldest society. And it does mean, as you say, that there are intergenerational tensions. Um, it doesn't mean we can't overcome them. I mean, I'm very optimistic, actually, about what ageing means. So one of the things I challenge in the book is the whole idea, for example, that working age populations are going to grow thinner because everyone stops working at 65. I think a lot of the graphs are kind of going in the wrong direction, but actually they don't need to. Um, we are seeing tensions between baby boomers and you know, younger people in Britain, particularly because of the Brexit vote. So that sort of accentuated right. everything. But actually, when I went to the US and looked at other countries, it's not as acute there. And so is this, I mean, this is an astonishingly complex picture we're suddenly into. And there are all sorts of things like, well, does that mean that we're moving back to, or not back, into a model of family togetherness and communal living that's a little bit more like you might find in, in some countries in what we call the developing world, mm. um, where actually you have intergenerational childcare and all sorts of things like that. But is this solely caused by that population bubble or are there other factors around, the, the, I suppose, the welfare state coming under strain because of the bubble? So the main factor that's driving kids to live at home for longer, um, certainly in, in the, the West, is university loans. I mean, you're seeing more and more and more kids in the US and the UK particularly coming back. You know, I met one couple who'd very painstakingly built a granny flat for themselves in their basement. It's now a graddy flat. It's <laughs> occupied by their two graduate sons. Wow. And that's very common. And we're also seeing what some experts think is the extension of adolescence to about 25. Because 25 is now the average age at which people live home if you're in Australia or in America and UK. And actually, there's this sort of sense that puberty starts earlier and maybe adolescence stretches longer. And then maybe, in fact, what I call the young old in middle age is stretching longer. So the whole thing is sort of stretching longer. So this is fascinating because it, it's actually almost suggesting a death of demography 
and, and, and the rise of something a little bit more nuanced anyway, like like models of different lives rather than the yes. kind of the age letterboxes that we all Well, I love that, death of demography, yeah. I mean, I <laughs> talked about the death of birth in my book, which is what I, how I refer to the falling fertility rate. Mm. And there is this extraordinary phenomenon that individual women across the globe outside sub-Saharan Africa are making individual decisions, very often not to have children at all or to have fewer children, which collectively is adding up to this huge shift um, in the birth rate. But yeah, the death of demography, we probably are. You're probably right. There is something about the way we slice it up. The problem is we haven't changed our mindsets about any of this. Yeah. So we still think that you're old at 60 or 65. We have a career timetable in our heads. You know, you kind of get on the partner track in your early 30s. You've kind of made it by 40. And we, we, I think we're all wedded to those kind of psychological things. We're also really stuck on the idea that seniority rises with age and pay rises with age. And some of us are going to price ourselves out of job, you know, if we're not careful. So there's so many aspects to that where I think you're right. We're going to have to re-slice it. Is part of your hope in writing the book and calling it 10 lessons and so on, is it that it's a manifesto, almost a sort of Martin Luther declaration, so that you can make it a thing, capital T, and people can rally behind it? Yes. I mean, I wrote this book really because I wanted to encourage people that change is possible. I think the demographics make it absolutely essential and inevitable. I mean, they question everything. You end up, if you look at the demographics, you end up seeing that we're going to have to change retirement and healthcare and pensions. But not just that, our sense of purpose in our lives and also the very notion of family, because we're not all going to have children to look after us. We need to create new kinds of support networks. So I really went round to these different countries to find largely ordinary people who are changing the way they see themselves and they are redefining age. And I think that's very inspiring. And I hope more people will take comfort from that. I think we, I mean, we all do. And and we've all, uh, we've all heard the stories of, you know, well, uh, and I suppose it's a very British thing as well. God, why can't we be more like they are in X, Y, Z? You know, why can't we be more like the continent and so on? But are there any stories from around the world um, that you just saw and you thought, oh my goodness, this, they've got it right. This is the way. There are so many. Um, actually, I mean, there's so many. Um, I mean, one of the most wonderful things I saw was in Holland, where I went round um, visiting patients with a nurse who she visits old people in their homes, and this is a completely new model. She had come out of retirement to work for this group because she said, "Finally, I'm allowed to do what I believe my vocation is, which is look after the whole person." So they have small teams. They get together. They assess their own patients. They basically, if they need a sandwich on Monday, they do the sandwich. If they need the wound dressing and the medication on Tuesday, they do the medication and so on. Um, It's now serving a million people in Holland. And essentially, it's about giving autonomy back to the professionals. Mm -hmm. And some of the people I visited, I mean, she took her dogs around with us, which I thought, my God, in England, you'd never, the regulators would never let you take the dogs. The dogs were fabulous, of course, because these old people lit up. And the satisfaction rates are huge. And they're actually saving money. It actually costs much less to have a single nurse who the person knows than a whole bunch of strangers, which is what we've done in Britain, because we have essentially reduced and reduced and reduced the tasks to ever smaller parcels and given them to the cheapest person. And that's really a false economy. Right. It's the it's the old thing of uh, the signpost at the top of the cliff being a bit cheaper than lots of ambulances down in the valley. Well, that's exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. In Japan, one of the most inspiring things I saw was called Silver Centres. Now, these were started in the 1970s by a professor in Tokyo and his mates who thought, hang on, 
we don't want to retire at 60, which is still the mandatory retirement age in Japan. And we want to have something useful to do. The government hated this scheme. This brings together older people to do part-time work for local businesses. And now the government is finally backing it because, of course, it's realised that if you're going to live 30 or 40 years after 60, it's a good idea to have something to do. So I went and sat in the Silver Centre in East Tokyo with a bunch of ladies who were all in their 80s or 90s. Round a table, they were gossiping, they were having coffee, but it wasn't just a coffee morning. They were also making goods for local businesses. Mm. And this was a genuine business. There were other people in another room doing beautiful calligraphy certificates because a lot of companies give people a formal certificate when they move to another job. These were all genuine jobs. Mm. And I think what we do in Britain is we have coffee mornings but without purpose. Yeah. So for me, the Silver Centre is a sort of coffee morning with purpose. Some of these women were taking two buses every morning to get to this Silver Centre. This was their lifeline. That's interesting, because it is harnessing the pent-up energy in a particular pool of the pot. And the skills, as you say, the sort of calligraphy and the so on. They've got huge reserves of talent and energy in the older population, and they're going to waste. And at the same time, we've got social problems that need fixing. So... In Zimbabwe, there's an amazing project, um, a psychiatrist called Dixon Chibanda, who was in his hospital in Harare one morning, discovered one of his patients had sadly killed herself, rang the mother and said, why didn't she meet her appointment? Why didn't she come to me? The mother said she couldn't afford the bus fare to come to Harare. So he realised he had to get out of the hospital. He had to get new therapists. There weren't enough people. He had to get into the villages. He came up with grandmothers. He tried all sorts of other people, but the grandmothers were far more effective. And in fact, a randomised control trial has recently shown they are more effective than the standard care oh, well. in treating depression and anxiety. And these grandmothers sit on friendship benches out in the open. They give six one-to-one -one therapy sessions. And they're very, very effective. And one of the great things about the project was that the grandmothers themselves benefited So it's a kind of win-win. But I think in our culture, we don't have the level of respect for the grandmother, that would make that so easy to do here. For everybody at home listening to this, I mean, this is this is fantastic um, insight into why things are the way they are and what we could do to solve them. But is there, is there anything that people, you know, around their kitchen table could, can take today and start to think about slightly differently as a result of your, your findings? Yes, I think the one thing people need to think about is how long they're actually going to live. Um, we underestimate how long we're going to live by about 20%, I think, on the whole. And we do that, I think, partly because we just don't want to think about the end. And if you don't think about the end, then you can't work backwards from the end. And it's very human and understandable. But in fact, if you want to be optimistic and have a much better last decade, it's really a good idea to start thinking about it now. Um, partly because you need to plan for it financially, um, but also because you can make real changes to your health. And so I think I've become evangelical about exercise but also actually about the brain, because we need our mental health to match our physical health. So the neuroscience is beginning to show that we keep producing brain cells throughout life. We don't have a fixed brain at some that sort of stops at 21. What we need to do after about 50 is challenge our brains more and more in order to get those neurons firing and in sync. And I think one of the main things I would say is 
don't let yourself slip into a kind of comfortable rut. Because if you're in your 50s or 60s, you may be very successful, you may be enjoying a good glass of wine with your friends and family, but you're not actually challenging yourself. You're getting better and better at what you already do. But the research says, I'm afraid, you know, learn a new language or take up the violin or something else. But this is the time to challenge yourself. And this is the time to think afresh about the future because it's going to be long and it could be really good. Baroness Camilla Cavendish there and her book, Extra Time, is out now. So, Rob and, and Claire, I mean, this, this idea that the world is fundamentally changing and that, that the data is showing us, I suppose, the way forward in terms of population movements and then what we need to do in order to cope with those uh, kind of in, in, a, in microcosm in our own lives. Is that something that you, you're, you've been following as well? Is this idea that, I mean, I know the world has be, been talking about sort of uh, uh, millennial snowflakes and Generation Z and, and uh, baby boomers and all of these different generational tensions that are going on. Is that something that you've, you've been seeing and experiencing? Yeah, both both at an individual level and an aggregate level. So at an individual level, uh, I use a f- this this thing called FaceApp, where you can take a photo and age yourself. And it's it's it's, it's back to the idea that our future self is alien. We think of our future self, and we don't recognise them. So making good decisions, financial health decisions, can only be made if you psych- if you emotionally connect yourself to your to your your future bit. Uh, the, the 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 stuff she was talking about about how we underestimate uh, you know life expectancy. So look, when I was born, the median age in the UK was about 34. Was the median age in the UK is about 40. And what's fascinating as we look around the world is just how the the shape and distribution of different people vary. So you know, in the UK, we've got a stable population, we've got low birth rates, we've got an aging society, and and that has implications. So the rate of increase of people over 80 has never been greater. So all feeding into this stuff. And the thing that stuck out for me for the last few weeks is Captain Tom. Captain Tom celebrated his 100th birthday, the Queen, David Attenborough. These, These are people well into their 90s. You know, they've seen more five, 10% market corrections than they have seen Christmases. You've got to remember, you've got to think about Captain Tom when he was 65. That was 35 years ago. Just think about it. Just, you know, go back to 1985 and imagine young Captain Tom, age 65. He probably never imagined himself being 100. So, you know, what's happening is the rate of change of life expectancy is is increasing and so it has serious implications for us at, a, at an individual level at a, at a family level and and camilla talked about what that means for different relationships but at a, at a from from an investment top-down perspective uh you know people talk about the demographic dividend you know the reason you in, in, invest in emerging markets is the primary drivers of economic growth are are basically population growth or productivity so in emerging markets you've got still got population growth it, when when that slows down, it has to be upset by productivity growth. And Claire, is that something that you also saw in 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 what Camilla was saying? The idea that I suppose we can we can attach and we can make decisions in our own private lives based on what we then if we then inform ourselves about what the bigger trends are. I mean, if I, I know if I knew, for example, 
more about um, the likely movements of different populations and the likely developments in, in our own population, that would drive certainly my choices in terms of uh, my investments. That would drive my choices in terms of my own planning for later life. Yeah, and I, and I think it is. I think, uh, as Rob was saying, you can you can see now where we're going uh, because you know who's alive now and you know general life expectancy of the people who are alive now. Um, and we're, we're still seeing those 65-year-olds living longer and longer and longer. So if you look at a 65-year-old now, there's going to be many more Captain Toms around uh, hitting, hitting 100 and very m- – ones that are healthy just as he is um that are mobile that are you know bright as a button you know all of that not what when i was young you were looking back and and you you sort of saying actually 100 unreasonable 100 and healthy even more unreasonable but actually it wasn't it's just we didn't realize that that's where everything was going so the the planning as you say you've got to go to that end point and you've got to work backwards to to work out how how we can get there well there's some sort of research being done about how happy are people so how happy are people 55 to 60 how happy are people 60 to 70 and so forth every single one of those cohorts is happy except the one that's just before the transition because it's back to Claire's point, there's been this narrative, this story. We're still operating in a, in a system that's 100 years old. You've got to remember that from 1900 to 2000, life expectancy increased 30 years. It went from 47 to 77. So in a century, life expectancy in the UK, in the US, in Australia, in the developed world, increased by 30 years. But we're still operating under this kind of Victorian sense, which is you go to school, you, you know, you get educated, you get married, you work for 40 years and then you retire and you might get a few years worth of retirement and all the rest. So the, it was this sort of try three stage model. The reality is a education can't stop the point that Camilla was talking about, about our cognitive ability. You know, our, our brain is our muscle. It's, it's probably our most important muscle. So it's as important as going to the gym and all the rest. So learning, learning needs to be lifelong. And we've seen this around the world, right? You know, you know, grandparents becoming proficient on Zoom, uh, becoming proficient on technology, because they're forced to. uh, And they can do it if if they need to. Uh, At the same time, work, you know, what Camilla's talking about is this idea that you kind of work from, let's say, 25 to 65 or, you know, 21 to 61. That's an out-of-date concept. You know, you might go from working full-time to part-time to less part-time. I, th- I think the, th- the thing that, um, as you say, that it, it's not linear anymore. We, no one's sort of just following the, the path. And I think what we're going to see is that the current gig economy of, of the young people will start to happen at the retirement level. Um, so we see it with, with people taking income, with all the flexibilities that were brought in around pensions. People can just dip in and dip out and then they can continue working. So they could do some sort of short term placement, give, giving back to the community, giving back their the knowledge. I mean, the, the amount of knowledge in the 65 and over that can bring so much back to the industry is, is amazing. Um, and I just don't think that the, the current sort of go go to school, get a job, retire, 65 stop working uh, isn't bringing that back into society right now and this this is interesting this this leads me in i suppose to our our next guest uh tim harford obe we've we've talked about experience and the the necessity of of realizing that we need a mix and and working things so they play out 
But it's tougher than that, isn't it? I mean, even economics has been called the, the dismal science because it's very good at showing, well, that was always bound to happen because uh, those things, but not quite all the time that it will happen. It's not quite there with, with chemistry and physics. So I asked him, I suppose, about the dangers of predicting and whether it's possible to be a, a predictor in an uncertain world. I think one of the important things to remember is that even if the forecast is correct, you can still make a bad decision. So I used to be a scenario planner back in the day. I used to tell these strange stories about the future for uh, for Shell, the oil company. And one of the uh, historical predictions that fascinated us was made by IBM. IBM were forecasting the global demand for millions of instructions per second. How much computer processing power would the world need? As this famous apocryphal story that the head of IBM once said the world would, would need maybe five computers. I don't think there's any evidence that he ever said that. But but this, so this is in the in the 70s, the 1970s, the early 1980s, IBM uh, forecasting global demand. And the way they were forecasting, I think, is fascinating. They were looking at, as I said, millions of instructions per second. And what that meant was they weren't thinking about the formats that the computing might take. Would it be in phones? Would it be in gaming consoles? Would it be in desktop computers? They're just thinking in terms of the raw processing power. And the ironic thing is their forecast was bang on. They're absolutely perfect in their prediction of how many millions of instructions per second the world would need. And it was a sort of um, exponential extrapolation. It worked just fine. But they missed how important uh, the desktop computer would be. And in particular, they missed the importance of software standards. They basically famously gave the whole game away to, to Microsoft. And so that's, that's an example where um, the historical data were a great guide. The forecast was perfect. And yet the decision was wrong. So not only is it difficult to make the right forecast, even when you make the right forecast, you may still miss the point. I suppose how difficult is that in terms of our, the, the way we, we ourselves as forecasters, as predictors, are imprisoned by our cultural assumptions? There's a famous story of, of Carl Benz, who having produced the uh, you know, early motor car, confidently said, well, it's, it's fine, but it's a fringe thing. There'll never be more than a million made, never. And when asked why, because, of course, he, he had invented the, you know, this, this car with these processes, could bang out as many as he wanted, he said, well, because the, 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 the resource of chauffeurs will be finite. He was a prisoner of the, the aristocratic age in his mind, in his culture. And it, it's, it feels like IBM were something like that as well, where they could, they could make the, the calculations correctly, but culturally they failed to see the shift. Is that a problem with predictors? I th- well, I think it's a problem with with the way we think about technology in general. One of my uh, projects is a BBC series called 50 Things That Made the Modern Economy. And it's a, a history of economics through the lens of technology. And the mistake we make over and over and over again is that we we fail to see that society changes. Uh, our social organisation, our uh, cultural habits, who who has power and who doesn't have power, our hierarchies, all of these things change to take advantage, to unlock the power of new technologies. But of course, even once you've recognised that, it doesn't mean you're going to be able to, 
to predict what the cultural change would be because cultural change and organizational change, you know, this is a hard problem. But it's, it's a fairly reliable prediction that the technology is not simply going to slot into the existing systems, um, solve some problem, do, it just be a better mousetrap and change nothing else. That's, that's not usually how it happens, especially with the most significant technologies. And do you, do you think there's a danger when we get... I suppose a little bit like crisis with, with, with the Oracle, you know, that when we, when we get a forecaster that we trust, that we build them up and we start sort of, I suppose, deliberately or, or accidentally destroying the value that is in them. There is a, a strong incentive among forecasters to trumpet their successes and to minimise uh, their failures. So w- w- one of the, I'm, I'm fascinated by the history of forecasting going back to the, the 1920s and, uh, uh, Irving Fisher is one character who um, who fascinates me. He was a, a brilliant economist, uh, very keen on the idea that good, enough data would lead you to make a successful forecast. And and he was in the end uh, disgraced and bankrupted by his failure to predict the Wall Street crash. He lost everything. But his one of his great rivals, Roger Babson, who was another forecaster, had been basically been predicting a crash throughout the late 1920s and it kept not happening and uh, and and he would he would just keep quiet about that and then when finally the crash arrived babson would advertise heavily that he had successfully called it so you you know you advertise the successes and you minimize the failures and pretty soon you're a forecasting guru roger babson was very good at this would some insight into predictions that don't come off or the babsons uh, being held to account for for all the predictions they got wrong before the one, uh, as it were, you know, the, the blind chicken eventually will find the piece of corn that, that happened to him. Is that something you think we would benefit from? Open data sets about predictions. Yeah, we need we need to keep score because you need to see the failed forecast. You cannot evaluate who's a good forecaster and who's not unless you see all of the forecasts and unless all of the forecasts are um, are verifiable. They need to be specific and they need to have a, a deadline. But it's not just about evaluating other people's forecasts. Even when it comes to evaluating our own forecasts, it's very easy to, to fool ourselves. One thing I wanted to emphasise is that it's, it's not just about getting the forecast right. Remember the lesson of IBM? The process of making a forecast can make us stupid or it can make us clever. So, I mean, the, the, the simplest example is, uh, is GPS. GPS will give us a forecast of traffic conditions and how to get where we're going. Uh, and yet we can just outsource the decision making to the computer, not pay any attention to what's going on uh, and end up completely lost. The two big words floating above my head right now as you're as you're talking are social media and i mean the idea that we're we're all living inside uh, and 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 receiving our facts from media that we love to consume why do we love to consume them because we they see the world in the perhaps the way we do or they reflect back our best idea of of who we are and perhaps that's uh, one of the reasons why there seem to be a lot of rather erratic uh, decisions being made in the world about what sort of world we all want to live in because is this something you see that we're we're surrounding ourselves with uh, friendly uh, investment club people whereas actually we we perhaps should be ensuring that our 
our head offices inside our, our minds are neurodiverse and are inclusive. Actually, I think the problem with social media is less the echo chamber and it's more the fact that it's just inherently um, superficial and we, we tend to amplify things that make us feel strong emotions. So we, you know, we're, we amplify things that make us joyful or angry or make us laugh rather than amplifying things that make us think. So I think that's the key problem with social media. There, I mean, there is clearly a, a filter bubble problem, an, an echo chamber problem, but the, the studies that I've seen of it um, suggest that it's, it's not at all obvious that social media has made it worse. I do think the fact that it encourages uh, the quite sort of shallow and quite emotion-driven thinking is, is more of a problem than the echo chamber, but the echo chamber is definitely there. And this sense then that we're more likely to go with things that make us feel good or to go with decisions that seem to echo our current experience and therefore feel comfortable, which is why, I mean, I know there's a lot of research into, the, into investment decisions and people are more likely to make investment decisions in things that they, they personally know about and quite like. This idea of trying to defeat all of our own inborn confirmation biases or homing biases, it feels quite zen somehow. It feels quite mindful. Absolutely. I mean, so one of the pieces of advice I give to people when, when I'm asking them, to, advising them how to think about statistics, notice how you're feeling about a statistical claim. The first thing you should do, notice how it makes you feel, uh, yeah. which is, I think, very zen, very mindfulness and meditation. Um, because once you've noticed whether, the, whether this claim is making you feel vindicated, angry, joyful, uh, I knew I was right all along, it can't possibly be true, it's fake news, whatever, whatever it is that you're feeling, um, noticing that feeling is, I think, the first step to, to stepping beyond your, your instinctive emotional knee-jerk reactions and, uh, and actually analysing the content of the claim and figuring out whether it's true or false. Tim Harford there talking about the dangers of prediction and of, and of bias, of course, and, and never a day goes by when we when we when we don't see something in the news about this. And of course, there have recently been stories about um, people, uh, government advisors, sort of going back and making it look like they were predictors. And then, of course, the great big trend towards super predictors and people like Nate Silver calling various U.S. elections and so on. Do you? Um, follow any predictors? Do you think that's a very dangerous thing to be doing, actually, to follow a predictor as if they were a kind of, um, I suppose, a kind of oracle? Uh, I, I personally um, struggle with it. Um, I'm, I'm massively sceptical. Um, and it, go, it goes back to the, um, you just keep throwing things until something sticks. Yeah. Um, and it does happen a lot um, with with people that you don't hear of them until they get something right. Um, and, and And that's, that's my, my biggest problem with it all. But there, there are some obviously very good predictions out there, um, and they're, but they're not detailed. They're not like this one thing will happen. So, you know, predicting the election, it's like one or two, you know, yeah. throw a coin. You're, you're going to get it right or not get it right. You know, those sort of things um, are probably slightly easier to predict. And the closer you get to them, the much easier they are to predict. But these sort of long-term predictions, um, I, I, I truly struggle with, um, and uh, and, I, and I find anything that's too funnel-like um, is 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 one of the things that I, th I think personally should be avoided. I think it's interesting. Tim talked about scenario planning, so I think what I disagree with is what's called a single point estimate, 
what we should do is plan scenarios and think what might happen. So the demographic changes that we were talking about were known. A few years ago, a report came out from Exxon that was done in 1982, where they predicted what would happen to global CO2 emissions by 2020. And they predicted that the CO2 parts per million would be 420 parts per million. And and with a cone of uncertainty and all the rest. And so this for me is where culture is interesting. They chose not to see that or or hear it because they didn't want to. Now, that was a scenario model. It had an exponential model. uh, And and it was good. It wasn't trying to predict it was 420, but it was showing that if we keep you know, burning fossil fuels, this is what will happen. Now, the reality is we didn't do anything with that. So for me, that's like the IBM quote. The, the other example of that was so prescient at the start of the year was exponential change uh, and models. And we could see what was happening in Italy and other countries. And, 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 and for me, the kind of, I suppose, lack of understanding about exponential models, whether you need to reframe it by population when you compare Sweden to the UK, you know, the population of density of Sweden is a tenth of the population density of the UK. So we need to be, you know, careful about sort of getting into bad science. And I think predictions are unhelpful, but scenario planning is, is really, really important. I think it's, it's really important to this sort of what if planning. So you mm. you make the predictions and the predictions change the culture rather than the culture making the predictions. And I think that's what we're we're seeing with with some of the predictions at the moment. Like you go back to that Exxon, if we'd looked at it and we'd dealt with it, that wouldn't have happened because we would done something about it. Um and, and that's for me what the predictions should be. If you do nothing, because you get a fairly certain outcome, if you do nothing and make no changes, this is what will happen. Use this for the good. Use this to make good choices, make good changes. So you're you're moving the the final point to where you want it to be, not where the prediction is. You right. you kind of drag it to the 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 point that is good rather than whatever point it was going to hit anyway. And of course we have we have the the infamous uh, Y2K scenario around that, don't we? Where people poo pooed the predictions because uh, there was no disaster. Uh, and there was no disaster because those predictions had been modelled and action was taken. But it's exactly. fascinating that, that you've both touched on something that, that I think unifies this. And, and Rob, I think you even said the words bad science, because there's there's somebody, uh, a chap called Ben Goldacre, who's a, a science communicator and, and a doctor. And he's um, he did the bad science column for a long time, I think, for the, for the Guardian and the, and the book of the same name. And he's talked about the need in public life to bring in uh, more as it were, um, scientific method. So if there is going to be a prediction, if there is going to be some research done by a, by a think tank, let's let's say what, what we expect to happen. Let's and make a commitment that we will, we will publicise the results, whether it's a successful trial or not a successful trial. Let's ensure that this is, this is on the record, on the public record, because then we can learn from it, which is a, a, obviously a big move um, towards doing in science now as well, where, where other people can take your failed experiments because that makes them useful. And in journalism as well, I know there's there's this big thing towards open journalism. Don't just say what the answer is. Say, show us your, open up your data sets. And this is something that um, our next guest, a chap called Toby Heaps, has been doing. Now, Toby's really interesting to me. He founded uh, in the early 2000s a, a, a company called Corporate Nights. Now, it's a, it's a magazine, it's a news service, but it's also a, a monitoring organisation devoted to sustainability. The idea of clean capitalism, as he calls it. And it, 
what's fascinating to me is that it's not a campaigning organization. He doesn't see it as campaigning and saying, you know, let's let's all write a letter to these companies. Let's what he sees himself doing is is gathering data in a very, very, very uh, strictly controlled way over and over again to ensure that that whatever companies are doing, and they may be sustainable, they may not be, on a number of metrics and a number of measures that can be known about. And one of the interesting things that he's pointed out is that pressure on companies to become more sustainable and to do the right thing. And I'm thinking now uh, to your uh, to, to the Cordoba as well, Rob. Pressure on companies to do the right thing and become more sustainable is now something that is coming from investors and the investment community. And I think that's very interesting. And, and, and I asked him about that. Was it 2003 you first founded Corporate Nights? What, what was what was the idea, and what did you want to achieve? If you go back to being that kind of I don't know twenty something chap, I think it was it was it was it's still crystal clear in my mind. It was two. It was uh, actually it was the magazine launched in two thousand two, so it was it was two thousand one, and it was this sort of idea that most people, like Anne Frank said, are are um, are are good at heart, but most people don't um, necessarily have their actions reflecting that goodness in their heart, and a lot of the reason uh, is because they uh, it's not because they don't care, it's because they don't know or they don't trust. And so this idea that we could sort of present a, a platform where we could show, you know, not all companies are exactly the same. Um, there are differences and there are companies that are doing things that are significantly better and there are ways to reward those companies. That was um, at the heart of the mission and, and still is. And I think um, it's something that's becoming more possible to verify and promulgate and communicate real time with technology and blockchain. Although the, the promise is yet to be fully realized, I think we will see a lot of progress in the next decade on that on that front. And let's talk for a moment about those those decisions and that trust. Because it seems to, to me that if you said to somebody, if you'd said to me 10 years ago, the people who are going to make the difference potentially are going to be investors by by having the, the, the those transparency tools to make more informed and responsible decisions and perhaps to see sustainability as something about future preparedness. That would have been a, almost a, a, sort of a radical shift in people's perceptions as to what the investment community can be. And how, how have you seen that come about? Was it something very sudden? Or is it something that Corporate Knights has kind of led, I suppose, with its, with its, um, with its data dumps? I mean, we've been, uh, a lot of people have been focused on investors and for, for the, the reason that, for similar reasons, you know, the reason is investors control access to oxygen. Um, capital is oxygen in in our market society, and the investors control the access to it. And so, the moment that the investors decide to supply or deprive any group or, or actor with that critical supply of oxygen, capital oxygen, um, is a moment that uh, everybody takes great notice of. And so, we've seen different inflection points along the way, with norms changing, with the UN principles for responsible investment, with the CDP growing to where it is. With the divestment movement growing to where it is, with with the decarbonization movement, with BlackRock sort of um, joining the uh, the fray um, mm. recently in an emphatic way with uh, Larry Fink's letter uh, call, calling climate change one of the most significant investment issues of our time and 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 predicting a significant reallocation of capital. So investors have hard power because they control the oxygen, but their ability to execute on that hard power is constrained to. The reality they operate in. The investors are not going to run too far ahead of the fundamentals in the economy, or too far behind. Um, in general, they um, they have to sort of you know live in the in the real world. But they can they can accelerate trends. Um, they can also flip switches when there's been uh, some sort of pent up uh, inertia in the system. Often there's a lot of pent up inertia in the system, and I think we're we're seeing that now. 
Um, but from a, from a normative perspective, when investors make a move, uh, the move that they make goes far beyond the capital allocation decisions that they themselves control or even their, their class, uh, the class of investors control. And there's one phrase that um, I know you've said, and that's in the past, and that's uh, if you want to see the soul of a company, take a look at the spreadsheet and see what's being, uh, what percentage of profits are being reinvested in, 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 into things that can be said are sustainable. Is that, is that really the sort of, the, I suppose, the, the money shot? Is that the key metric that people should look? And is it really that simple? Yeah, I think, I mean, if you boil it down, um, if, if you really want to, um, you know, if you show me your budget, I'll show you um, your, your values kind of idea. So show, show me the income statement of a company, where they make their money from, and you can, you can deduce a lot from that. Um, there are companies that are, you know, maybe selling products that, you know, like tobacco, for example, where uh, Philip Morris is now making a big push on being carbon neutral and, and being a climate leader. Um, and uh, I think it's interesting. It's, in, it's, it's kind of counterintuitive. You don't really put that tobacco company in the social responsible box. And I wouldn't put it there myself uh, at the moment. But it, it, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. And I think actually those examples are helpful because they, they, the tension um, – uh, ignites curiosity in people, and then they might they might learn a little bit more about what carbon neutral means than if it's just a utility or uh, you know Microsoft doing it. Let's think now about the people listening who are going to be um, investors at home around their kitchen table potentially, and what pressure they can bring to bear, and, and what could, what meaningful actions could they start to take? One, um, I suppose, in in order to try to 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 to, to cultivate a more responsible investment portfolio, but two, I suppose, in order to ascertain exactly where their investments do stand? I think one of the more powerful things, most, most retail investors, although this is changing over the next few years with different um, robo-advisor platforms that are making it relatively easy to switch, but at the moment, most people they do their investing. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of the average person. If they're doing investing, they do it through their, their banks. And so uh, most banks don't have a, they're increasingly we have better product, but still there's uh, there's a lot of lag. Maybe this is less true in the UK than in uh, mm-hmm. North America. Um, although we've seen a flood of product coming on the market, including well-priced um, exchange-traded funds that um, are fairly well put together. Mm-hmm. But I think the best thing somebody can do is go in and sit down with their institution and say, I really would like to invest my values and see how the institution handles it. And if the institution handles it well, ask, ask some good questions present some good product um, that looks to reflect those values. And also they show what's inside. They, they tell stories about the companies inside that product, inside that product, not an antidotal, but in a sort of um, in a fairly comprehensive ways that show that uh, they're listening and the product is aligning with the values of the, um, of the client and, and they're well-priced. They're not, they're not luxury goods, but they're priced on par. That's a good sign. If, if it's not there, um, increasingly there are institutions that do offer this, uh, you know, maybe the leading bank or the leading wealth management firm. I think um, the mo- one of the most powerful things you can do is is take your money, take your account, and move it to another institution, and write a letter to the chairman and the CEO of that company, and uh, tell them what you did and why you did it. That kind of the signal um, is the kind of thing that will um, get institutions on board. We we have a lot of coverage here of of, of people like Greta uh, Thunberg and Extinction Rebellion and so on and so forth. And sustainability has, has still got that public perception of, does, does this mean uh, green? Does this mean uh, environmental stuff? Tell me a little bit about this idea of ESG has come about and how helpful do you think it's been that people have stopped going, this is a green thing, this is about trees and flowers and oxygen, and it's, be- and it's become much more holistic to do with corporate governance and social uh, responsibility as well. Yeah, I think, I mean, the, the social component is 
is critical. We're at the at the end of the day, humans are still, you know, at least we that's what we tell the story or tell ourselves. We're still running the show here on planet Earth, and uh, and so if you have a strategy that is not taking into account the impact on humans, then it's uh, you know it's a one legged strategy, and uh, it's it's not going to be. I don't think it's going to be sustainable or success, successful. Um, just like if you have a green economy plan and you're not taking into account the affordability concerns of of average people, it's going to lose uh, political support. So. Uh, having the social and the environmental world up to, into one um, is uh, is absolutely essential for resilience and for the strategy to be able to survive. And what uh, finally, what's next for you, and what's next for corporate well, not corporate nights? I mean, the 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 global top twenty just came out. The stock market report has just come out, and obviously the the, the words, you know, the the, the masthead is everywhere, and 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 you're becoming sort of much more prominent. Where do you take it from here? Yeah, I guess it's a good question. I mean, uh, this year at the World Economic Forum. Looking around at the events and um, with uh, sort of Larry, the Larry Fink letter sort of fresh off the presses, it was sort of uh, it seems like um, the message has taken hold at the at the at at the heart of the power structure. And you, looking at the European Green Deal, read, I read through it in detail. I couldn't I couldn't even think of anything else to put in there. It was the whole the whole the whole enchilada. Um, and it's, this is the, um, the beginning of a five-year presidency with the president of the European Commission, a German conservative at that, mm. making it um, her sort of marquee um, issue and with, with political support um, at, the, uh, at the ground, on the ground level. So it seems like, uh, I guess at the, at the moment, it's um, making sure we don't get complacent and making sure we don't make our role, at least at Corporate Nights, making sure that we don't reinvent the wheel unnecessarily and um, because the world is moving too quickly for us to um, to be reinventing the wheel, we need to we need to be using the. Um, there's a lot of a lot of uh, um, good work that has been done by a lot of people over the last decade, and we are ready to move rapidly. We just need to be plugging the right um, right things, the, the plugs into the right outlets, and uh, making sure uh, we have the um, the right people um, advising um, the the pilots. And I think we'll get to the destination. Uh, without a, you know, within in a, in a fairly safe, timely manner, but we we can't afford to reinvent the wheel unnecessarily. So that was Toby Heaps, and we had some 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 of the sounds of downtown Toronto. I don't know if you could hear uh, on the tape there. We were talking to him as um, as there were some works going on in the street outside his his HQ. But it was quite an interesting thing, wasn't it, that he was saying where actually he sees himself as as part of a wave of just information donors. Um, to, to, to equip people to make their decisions, not somebody who's campaigning for one decision or another. And I suppose that that leads to the need for experts, um, people like yourselves, to, to come in and, and help individuals interpret that. I totally agree. Um, I, I have to say, whenever you're investing, trust is one of the, the biggest things. And I think that's one thing that we, we do have. We're very open. They're face-to-face discussions or face-to-Skype discussions, as we are at the moment. Um, but being able to ask the difficult questions and have open and frank discussions about investing, about um, uh, ESG, about all of that is is very important. Uh, having um, He talks about banks investing. I, I couldn't imagine probably a more opaque um, way to do investing is to deal with your bank these days. Uh, what you really need is real people. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that uh, that we bring to the party. Uh, and I think that's something that is, is really strong in, in this area. And just building on what Claire said, so we, we have this sort of uh, saying, which is financial well-being in a world worth living in. And, you know, in the context of a hundred year life and our future selves, and we're underestimating our life expectancy by 20 percent, 
securing your financial well-being of you and your family is key. And we know that that's long term. And therefore, that forces you to think sustainably. And so it's this whole idea that there's no point in having enough money to retire on if the world's not worth living in. So, you know, if there are no coral reefs, if we've got no plants, if if there's too much CO2 in, 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 in the world. And so SAP, we take that really seriously because because of our size and scale, we can take, you know, someone putting in, you know, a grand a month into their ISA, aggregate that all up into a hundred billion pounds. Yeah. Now we manage, we allocate that money with over 38 fund managers around the world. So I think that's about six trillion pounds and that gets invested in companies and bonds and properties around the world of 68 trillion pounds just vast amounts of money and because of that we have gone to every single one of our fund managers and said if you want to work with us you need to sign up to the united nations principles for responsibility so it's a commitment we laid out at the start of the year uh and we were already at 60 or 70 percent a few years ago and we wanted to get to 100% by the end of the year. And we're bang on track to do that. And we can say nine fund managers around the world signed up because SJP said to them, this is what we think good looks like. Uh, Next month, we're releasing a carbon report to all of our clients. So you will know what the carbon footprint is of all of your investments. So your ISAs, your pensions, your kids' choices, all of that. Where's it invested? What's its carbon footprint? And how important is that? in terms of what it means for the environment and, and a world worth living in. At the same time, it's important that we walk the walk. So last year, as a board, as an executive board, we signed up to what's called the TCFD, the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. Uh, and what we've done is we've mapped our entire CO2 production since we were founded in 1991. So we know how much CO2 we did in 92, 93, 94. Last year, our CO2 emissions went down. We now source 100% of our electricity from renewable energies. Uh, And we're putting in place stuff to become a more environmentally friendly business in terms of how we operate and act. So it's really important that these two go hand in hand. And and as you know, there are you know increasing amounts of index. You know, there's the there was the Responsibility 100 index uh, that was launched earlier this year, which is the FTSE 100, and we're part of that. And there's two things: is the walk and the talk. So, what is your company talking about, and are you walking the walk? And I think it's really important that we do these things. I also think we need to accept we're all not perfect. So. There's some stuff that SJP does well. There's other stuff that we don't do less well, but let's be held to account. Let's get better. We're getting better at gender diversity. We're getting better at addressing the gender pay gap. We're going to be better at addressing diversity uh, you know, through the lens of BAME uh, or through the lens of uh, uh, LGBTQ. So I think the, the, the point that Toby made is that what I like about all of this is you know, if, if you watch David Attenborough on TV, you're like, okay, but what can I do about it? Yes, I can recycle. I can sort of consume less plastic bottles. There's stuff I can do. But actually, here's the killer fact. If you invest your money in a sustainable and responsible way over your lifetime, that has 27 times the impact of reducing your carbon footprint than flying less, eating less red meat, and all the other actions that you can do. So you know that when you invest your money and if you're doing the right things, you're having a massive effect. It's that multiplier effect I talked about at the moment, which is you take your £1,000 a month, it gets aggregated up to £100 billion, that gets rolled up into £6 trillion, 
and and it manifests itself across 60 trillion pounds around the world and this real notion that money can be a force for good and I, and and that's one of the reasons that you know I'm I'm really proud to to kind of do what I do because to be in that position to 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 help connect 750,000 clients and their money and make the world a better place is is a real you know is a privilege I mean you could almost see a thread can't you with all of these things whether we're talking about the moving beyond the, the kind of the mere data and figures of of, of the, the the lifespan and, and population growth, and looking at things like what that doctor did in Harare, or whether you talk about Toby and looking beyond just the data and thinking, well, let's ally some some human emotional intelligence to that, and let's see what we can do using that data, or indeed, you know, Tim, where we're talking about making wiser and not just more data informed decisions. I think that. That really sings through to me with what you're saying. This idea that we can, we can, we can now analyse things. We can now look at them, but let's also use our wisdom and let's let's use good intent um, and, and our integrity to make them mean something. So I think this is where the Tim Hartford thing is that we can make future predictions or future scenarios about if we keep consuming oil, gas the way we do, and with population growth. So, you know, a hundred years ago, the population of the world was two and a half billion. We're at like 7 billion heading to 9 billion. We had Daimler predicted there'll only be a million cars. We now have over a billion cars on the planet. Uh, We know how much energy we consume. The demand for energy is increasing at an exponential rate. The technology has been there for solar panels. There are some known knowns in front of us. What we need to do is at an individual level, at a company level, at a government level, at a world level, and go, what do we need to do? Now, the genius is, and what Toby talked about is, let's not reinvent the wheel. There's a brilliant framework that we can all map ourselves to, and it's the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Again, if you open up you know, the SJP report and accounts, you can see how we map what we're doing to that. It's important we create economic job, you know, economic growth. You know, jobs, having people, people meaningfully employed is important, paying taxes, but we need to tackle climate change. We need to make sure that we don't destroy our rivers and our and our oceans. You know, we need to address the gender, you know, the gender inequality in the UK and around the world. So we have these brilliant 17 framework, these 17 goals that we can map ourselves to, where we invest our money, the companies we work for. Uh, and, and that's the opportunity. And what a note to end on. The idea that we can actually change the world in our own individual ways. Tremendously inspiring stuff. Claire Trott, Rob Gardner, thank you so much for joining me. And wherever you're listening, I hope you have a wonderful day ahead. Hold up. 